Good morning. Um, it's good to see all of you here. I, I for one, um, got pretty down when we weren't meeting all together, and it's, it's been great to be back. Um, each, each Sunday has just been a, a tremendous joy. I do want to start off by saying, well, I'm sorry, I apologize. Um, none of what I prepared this morning, I realized last night that uh, none of it has to do with any kind of current events or anything like that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's all very applicable. Um, it's all very, uh, very timely, I think. The, the Word of God is always timely. But um, I, I forgot to put anything in about Father's Day. I forgot to put anything in about Juneteenth or anything like that. This is something that, uh, that has been on my heart. Uh, passages, uh, several passages actually, um, from Jeremiah, kind of samples of some passages that have been on my heart um, for a long time now. I, months and months, God has continued to, uh, to bring these back up in my thinking and, um, and bring me back to these. Um, as was mentioned earlier, this is, uh, is going to be a, a two-parter. I'm coming back on the 12th up here to, um, to preach the second part. So if you, if you are looking in your notes, if you did pick up one of those sheets in the back, um, we're really just going to get through points one and two today, and then um, point three will be, um, will be on the 12th when, when we resume all of this. Um, and I think actually uh, it's God's providence, but Mark is speaking uh, next week on uh, the 23rd Psalm, and it, it ties right in, so it'll be great. But if you could open your Bibles to uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, um, and we'll be reading in verses 4 through 8 to start off with. We're going to be kind of skipping around in Jeremiah, um, looking at that. Before we get into that, though, I'd like to pose a question, um, just to get our minds kind of turning, get focused. What is the gospel? It's a it's a word we throw around a lot, I think. It's a, you know, we've, we've all might have memorized some brief uh, um, summaries of the gospel that we could maybe quote, and certainly Scripture has some summaries, but I think a lot of the time we forget what it actually is we're talking about when we use the word gospel. We use that word so often, and it's all through Scripture. It's, it's all through the Word of God, and it's, it's central to what we do here. We've sung about all of the tenets of the gospel already this morning. It's really amazing. If you go down through those songs, it's, it's all pointing back to Christ. The Bible gives uh, several brief synopsis, one sentence, summaries of the gospel. Um, and in one sense, the Bible in its entirety is the gospel because every, every idea within the Bible is connected to every other idea because there's a single purpose. There's a single story that drives everything and that is the gospel story. So in one sense, it can't be honed down or anything like that. But in Matthew and Mark, um, we're not going to be there this morning, but they, uh, Jesus, when he first starts preaching, they sum up his gospel message in a very, very simple synopsis of the gospel. It's super short. It's just the kingdom of God is at hand. Or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the language, they mean the same thing. That's the language Matthew uses. And that's it. That's the gospel. And then the people are called to repent and believe the good news. But what does that mean? 
The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. How are, people supposed to, how are the people who are listening to Jesus supposed to understand what the kingdom of God is? And what does it mean when they're called to repent? Well, there's two answers to that question, I think. Um, first of all, what's given in, in Matthew and Mark are just uh, summaries of Jesus' message. He probably explained a lot more about what he's talking about. I don't think he just went around repeating the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. He, um, he loved people more than that. But then also, his audience, the people of Israel who he had been called to preach to, they had the entire Old Testament to tell them what the kingdom of God was and what to expect in the gospel. They had all of the prophets for hundreds of years who had been talking about the kingdom of God. Every Sabbath day when they were in their synagogues, they would hear it over and over again. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, this is the gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand, they would have had a pretty good idea of what, the king, what that was, what that meant, what that good news was in its fullness. Um, so this morning, in essence, all of that to say, um, we're going to be looking at the gospel according to Jeremiah. And we're going to be starting with every good news. There, uh, there's a bad situation that precedes it. So we're going to be starting with the bad news in chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. So let's read, if I uh, can find it. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit, they refuse to return. I have listened and heard. They have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his course, like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, and the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise, and the, Lord, the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. That's God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it is God-breathed. It testifies to itself that it is that. I pray, Lord, that you would strip away everything other than your truth and strip away everything other than Christ, that we might see him more clearly in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, when the Bible treats hearts and lives, it often, it often talks about them in terms of a direction. And we heard Pastor Roundtree talk about that earlier. He talked about, um, what was it? What was the name of his? Uh, walking in, what was it? Walking in a manner worthy. That's what it was. Um, he just preached a sermon on that. The Bible is always talking about direction. It's talking about our lives in terms of that. It's not just a series of uh, one-off decisions and causes and effects, a random chain of events or anything like that. Everybody's life has a direction. No matter what you're doing, you're always pointed somewhere. You're always going somewhere. And we talk about this ourselves. I mean, it's not, it's not a weird Bible thing. We use that kind of language ourselves. We, we might say, you know, that lady has turned her back on all her friends. And when we say that, we don't really mean that 
she said an unkind word or um, she's forgotten to celebrate someone's birthday or someone, something like that. What we say when we say someone has turned their back on their friends is that the course of their life has changed. They were directed towards these people in kindness and now they're turned away. There are the, the acts of kindness now lo- no longer make sense in their life because they've turned away from them. Their hearts are turned away. And we mean wholesale abandonment. Um, she was walking alongside them, this hypothetical person, or to use a more current phrase, they were, people were doing life together, and now she's turned her back on them. It's a horrible thing to say. It's even more horrible in families. Um, something to think of. Uh, some of you out there may be suffering internally because today's Father's Day, and maybe there's some brokenness in the family there, and you know a son or a daughter has turned their back on you, or there's there's a turning away within your family. You had been doing life together, and then there was a turn, and it broke things up in a marriage or, or in any other part of a family. That's, what, that's how the Bible speaks as well, and we can say it in, um, in less permanent ways, like we say, you know, uh, that guy's not going anywhere. Don't let him date your daughter. He's, he's not headed anywhere. He's, you know, his heart is turned to binge-watching Netflix or playing video games or something, but um, the direction of his life is not something you want. Or you might say someone turned to alcohol for solace in their, in their sadness, or some, you might say street kids turned to a gang for protection. We're always turning, always turning and returning. And that's, Scripture uses this idea all the time. The, in the Old Testament, the word that is most frequently used is, it kind of sounds funny, it's the word shub, or shuv. I think it kind of sounds like a, a middle school insult. I can almost hear my 11-year-old self saying, quit being such a shub, or something like that. But it's the, the, the meaning behind that word is extremely profound when it's informed by Scripture. It's a change of whole life course in which all of our decisions and our commitments find their meaning. Everything we do makes sense based on our life course. So then the main problem in this passage is that the Israelites did not turn. They didn't turn. It's almost like they were living out the story of the prodigal son, the the whole nation was. And instead of coming to their senses, they just stayed in the pigsty. It doesn't make sense. They won't come to their senses. They've been suffering for their sin, and still they turned away from God. It says here, do men fall and not get up again? Of course they get up again. You watch someone trip, he stands back up. But these people have fallen away from God, and they just lie there on the ground. They lie there in their sins. They wallow in their sins, and that's the human condition. You know, they're not injured. They're capable of standing up and brushing themselves off, but they don't because their hearts are turned away. They've fallen away. In verse 6, there's another kind of word picture painted. Everyone has turned to his own course like a horse charging into battle. You know, maybe you've seen um, one of those medieval or movies about medieval or ancient warfare where a knight on horseback or a warrior on horseback 
picks up an incredible amount of speed charging in toward the enemy lines. And his idea is that his momentum and the force of his animal is just going to be so powerful. You know, maybe it's 2,000 pounds of horse and rider, and maybe they're going, I don't know, 25 or 30 miles an hour, and they're just going to punch right through that enemy line and scatter their enemies. And then someone on the other side of the battle, the enemy, foot soldier, you know, takes his pike or his spear, and he plants the end of it in his ground, and he points the point right at the horse, and all of that momentum and all of that force just serves to skewer the horse and throw the rider hard to the ground. That's the image here. That people, people are going after their sins so fast and so hard that there's no chance of them turning around. They're not going to turn themselves. They're going to slam into their enemies or slam into whatever it is, catastrophe, and be thrown to the ground. That's the the bad side of the message of Jeremiah before the gospel. Um, they're quite literally going to skewer themselves on the spears of the Babylonians. That's what Jeremiah is about, uh, the coming of, of the captivity, for the most part. In verse 7, there's another word picture. You know, even birds, when things get bad, they know to turn. They're not real smart. They have small brains. But when things get cold in Canada, they come down here to South Carolina. The the ponds freeze over, there isn't any food, they say, well, it's time to go, let's go, and they turn back. They come where it's supposed to, where it's warm and there's food. They know what they're doing, so why hasn't this people done it? Why haven't they turned? It's ridiculous. It's the whole message here. Um, one more word picture, I do want to turn on, turn over to, uh, let's see, chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. Um, if you would, in your Bibles. These, I think these pictures teach us a lot about the nature of sin and, um, and what it does to us. Chapter 2, verse, verses 11, 12, and 13 of Jeremiah say this, Has a nation changed its gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Now, it's kind of an interesting analogy, but basically what it is in the ancient Near East, or really in any undeveloped country, there's three ways of getting water, of getting drinking water. You can either get it from a, um, a spring that comes bubbling up out of the ground under its own pressure, under its own force, and that's what's called living water here. It's constantly moving, um, and so it's constantly clean, it's, and it's always fresh. The, if you ever go up to Moody Springs up off of Highway 107 toward Burles Ford, um, there's a spring where the water is just gushing out of the ground, and it's absolutely delicious. I love that water. I'll go up there and fill big jugs of it. And you don't even have to filter it or anything. Um, I don't know, some of the doctors might be mad at me for saying stuff like that. But <laughs> I've always drank it, and it's never caused any problems. It's, it's delicious water. Um, but that was, that was the best kind of water, and it's always the best kind of water. It's called living water, always moving under its own pressure, under its own force, its own life. The second way was to dig a well um, and, you know, get water that way. To dig down, water would seep in and you'd, you'd drink it. And that was pretty good water, too. The third way was to basically build yourself a catch basin and catch runoff water 
as it came down the mountainside or, you know, rainwater. And that water was very often contaminated, and it was often stagnant. And so what the Lord is saying here through Jeremiah is, look, you had the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You had the creator of the universe and the sweet relationship with him through his covenant. And you abandoned all that for these gods that are frankly awful. If you read what the Canaanites wrote about their own gods, they're kind of stupid. They, they're, they're kind of thugs. They, um, they abandon their own. They, they turn against their own. They betray each other. They, um, they demand child sacrifice, the killing of their followers' children for them. It's stupid. But it even gets worse than that. Not only did you exchange the sweet living water of the living God for stagnant, contaminated water of these other deities, but they're not even real. They're statues. It's not so much that you're exchanging living water for cistern water. The cisterns are broken. They can't hold water. You're exchanging living water for nothing, and you're about to die of thirst. And we've all seen this in so many ways, and it's horrible to watch. We've seen people exchange potentially happy marriage for lying and adultery and bitterness when they turn away from God. Why don't you just stop that? You know, it, it shocks you sometimes. Why are you destroying yourself like that? We've seen drug addiction and drunkenness destroy people's lives and livelihoods. Rather than going to the fountain of living water, they're going to an experience that leaves them with nothing. We've seen people hold other people's opinions in such high esteem that it crushes them. You know, they make a god out of, out of their reputation or out of other people's opinions of them, and they become paralyzed. They can't move. They can't act. They can't work. They can't love. All because they've exchanged the true God for something that they've created. Whole societies have led themselves into destruction by oppressing the poor or giving themselves over to corruption and lying. Don't you see where that's headed? Don't you see that revolution or economic collapse or bloody war is just around the corner? And for what? You're running headlong toward your own death, and what do you hope to gain? A little spending cash? A good reputation? A moment of pleasure? These things are all going to fall away like water out of a broken cistern. This is a situation that Jeremiah is speaking into. We've seen churches do the same thing. They exchange the living and true God described here in the Bible for a deity of their own imagination. Churches have reimagined the God of Christianity to be a God that permits anything, and permits homosexual acts or adultery or anything. Churches have reimagined the God of Christianity to be a God who shames people, God of Christianity to be some kind of other God. Churches and individuals have invented for themselves a God whose favor can be manipulated through good deeds and, you know, good actions of any kind. Others have invented a God that's not distinct from the God of other, gods of other religions, just one path among many. And all of these things are figments of imagination that lead to nowhere. And ultimately, they lead to death. Now, certainly, one can be mistaken or misled about God and still worship the Lord. I'm not saying that everyone who 
um, has false beliefs about God is, is turned away from him. But to some extent or another, all of these have exchanged the fountain of living waters for a broken cistern that can't hold water. And we see it in our own lives as well. I don't even need to bring up examples, but you can look in your own heart, in your own life, in your own week, and see where your heart, not just individual actions, but your heart has been turned away from God in some way or another. So why, why is that the case? And what is the answer? Well, the why is a different story. Uh, Jeremiah doesn't really address the why because he's so, he's so focused on the, the absurdity of what's going on around him. He doesn't even want to talk about the why. He's, this is ridiculous. You guys have turned away from God. But throughout Jeremiah and throughout most of the prophets, there's these, these moments of hope. So most of the book is dark and depressing really not a fun read, and it's about the, the last downward slide of Israel as, as they, they go into apostasy, and ultimately the temple and the city are destroyed. Everybody's taken to captivity. Jeremiah himself is kidnapped and taken to, uh, to Egypt. It's not, not a fun story, but every now and then there's just these rays of light where he looks past what's happening around him. He looks past the sin and the despair and the judgment that's coming, for the next 70 years, they're going to be in captivity. And he looks to what God is going to do. He looks to the answer to their situation. And it's absolutely, uh, I don't know what the word is, it's absolutely invigorating when he does. It's, it, it gives, it's life-giving. Um, and we've seen, you know, you, you see one of these moments is in uh, 2911, Jeremiah 29:11. Some of you have probably seen that on plaques on people's walls. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Um, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That was to come after the 70 years of, of captivity and the fall of Jerusalem. And people have taken great courage in these moments um, throughout the history of the church. Another passage is chapter 23, verse 1 through 6. We can turn there. Um, 23 verses 1 through 6, and it, it too starts out pretty dark, but then it picks up. It does get better. And this is what it says. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them, behold, I am about to attend to you for your evil deed, for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. And they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified. Nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. 
A horrible thing had happened in Israel. The leaders of the people of God had turned them away from following him. These imaginary gods I'd mentioned earlier, they weren't, it wasn't just so much that the, um, you know, the people weren't listening to their pastors and they weren't listening to their preachers. It, was, it got even worse than that. The preachers themselves were feeding them lies. They were feeding the, the people lies. And so the situation started to look very, very hopeless. The preachers, the leaders, were scattering the people. And Jeremiah, he, he saw that firsthand. He was actually a priest as well as a prophet. You know, most of the, most of the priests were separate from the prophets in the Old Testament. There's um, different ways of being a priest and different ways of being a prophet. Jeremiah was both. And so he knew that the job of a priest was to, was to preserve knowledge, to preserve wisdom, to preserve the law, the teaching. And all of these others around him had gone away. And they started preaching other things, things that they had made up, things that made sense in their context but weren't in line with the Word of God. They were like shepherds scattering the sheep, turning them away to the destruction of all. But eventually, eventually, God was going to say, enough, enough, I'm done with this. I put these leaders in charge of my people, and they haven't attended to their needs. From now on, I will attend. I will attend first to the punishment of those who turn their backs on me, and then I will attend to the needs of my own flock. I will gather them. First, I will bring them back from captivity, and then I will make sure that they are taken care of. The punishment that was coming on the people of God was that their city was going to be destroyed, They were going to be refugees in other lands or captives in Babylon for 70 years. And after all that time, God was going to act. He was going to bring them back, first physically to the land, and then he was going to draw their hearts to himself. He was going to do this work through the the work of new shepherds that he was going to raise up, new leaders for his people. But isn't that exciting? God's people had been going after lies and adultery and unjust gain and false gods. All of them are listed out um, throughout the book. Just like all the other peoples in the world, they had been pursuing these things and all of their futility and the meaninglessness of them. And then God says, that's it. No more. I will act. Don't you long for that? For God to just step in and make things right. You've been struggling with your own sin and the sins of others. Your sin amplifies their sin. Their sin amplifies your sin. And it all just kind of builds on everything. It all just kind of builds on itself until God says, that's it. I myself will gather a remnant. I will raise up shepherds over them. This prophecy, by the way, God began to fulfill in the time of the leaders uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. He brought the people back from captivity and from Babylon, and um, they began to be taught his ways again. They began to be taught the law again. Um, And Zerubbabel was their leader. He was descended from David, kind of like this righteous branch fellow. But he wasn't actually a king. It wasn't quite enough. God began to fulfill the prophecy 70 years after the the beginning of the captivity, but the priests and the prophets still couldn't turn people's hearts back. 
that had to wait for another thing or another event to come. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. In his days, Judah will be saved. So I started out this morning talking about a king and his kingdom. The gospel in its most concise form is that the kingdom has arrived. The king has arrived, and he is building his kingdom over all the earth. And that prophecy will be fulfilled in its ultimate form when Jesus comes again and his final enemies are defeated. The answer to turning away, the answer to all of this turning back, the answer is Christ. He will save his people. Even doing so, even, even going so far as to graft in the Gentiles, our own ancestors had nothing to do with the people of God. But it wasn't enough for God just to bring back Judah. It wasn't enough for Christ just to bring back those people who had turned away from him. He also was going to be the Savior of the world. He would die to pay for sins, be raised to conquer death, and send his Holy Spirit to turn people back to himself. So Christians and non-Christians alike must repent and turn to God. We're going to talk about this more on the 12th, but in Acts 11, the saints who are in Jerusalem are shocked that repentance has been granted to the Gentiles. These people who are far away from God, God has given them the turning back. He has turned them to himself to trust. Unless we should think that... Um, that repentance is just for unbelievers. Turn over to one more passage, Jeremiah 15, uh, in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, then you will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. The prophet himself was called on to repent. Jeremiah had, had doubted God's promises and doubted God's goodness. In the midst of all of this calamity, he had thought that maybe God was going to be like a... Um, it actually says earlier that he, maybe God was going to be like a, an unsteady stream, an unreliable stream of water, and that he was going to fail or give out. And so God says, no, turn back to me, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a believer, and he needed to turn. He needed to turn to God. It all begins and ends with trust. If you go to chapter 17, verses 5 through 8, um, it says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see prosperity, but live in stony wastes. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green 
and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. All of repentance and all of turning begins and ends with trusting our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting this righteous branch that God has raised up, trusting that he has done what he said he would do and that he will do what he has said he will do. So go, go to Christ. Go with the psalmist. Psalm 139, you don't have to turn there. It says, search, my, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the paths everlasting. He will answer that trusting prayer. He will search your heart. He will turn you to himself and away from your sins. He will show you the deceptiveness of your heart you can take it to him. Turn away from your sin and trust that he has forgiven you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you are worthy of that trust. I thank you, Lord, that um, you have given us your word and that you have given us um, yourself so that we can see you and know you. And I thank you that you've not turned away um, from your people, but you turned them to yourself, Lord. I pray, God, that you would turn our hearts to you this evening and these, in these coming weeks when there's just so much anxiousness around, um, so much hurt and despair. Lord, I pray that you would give us that light that your prophets saw. I pray that you would give us the knowledge of your Son and that hope in him, and the hope in his ultimate reign on this earth. Um, bless the rest of our Lord's day today as we continue to worship you in Jesus' name.